Section 37 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brittany Bogle. The World Story, Volume 15, The World War, edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 37. A British Soldier at Suvla Bay, 1915 by John Hargrave. A pale pink sunrise burst across the eastern sky as our transport came steaming into the bay. The haze of early morning dust still held, blurring the mainland in water in misty outlines. You must understand that we knew not where we were. We had never heard of Suvla Bay. We didn't know what part of the peninsula we had reached. The mystery of the adventure made it all the more exciting. It was to be a new landing by the 10th Division, that was all we knew. Some of us had slept, and some had lain awake all night. Rapidly, the pink sunrise swept behind the rugged mountains to the left, and was reflected in wobbling ripples in the bay. We joined the host of battleships, monitors, and troop ships standing out, and stood by. We could hear the rattle of machine guns and the distant gloom behind the streak of sandy shore. The decks were crowded with that same khaki crowd. We all stood eagerly watching and listening. The death silence had come upon us. No one spoke. No one whistled. We could see the lighters and small boats towing troops ashore. We saw the men scramble out, only to be blown to pieces by landmines as they waded to the beach. On the Lalababa side, we watched platoons and companies form up and march along in fours, all in step as if they were on parade. No sooner had my companions spoken than a high explosive from the Turkish positions on the Sari Bear Range came screaming over the salt lake. They were like a little group of dead beetles, and the wounded were crawling away like ants into the dead yellow grass and the sage bushes to die. A whole platoon was smashed. It was not yet daylight. We could see the flicker of rifle fire and the crackle sounded first on one part of the bay and then on another. Among the dark rocks and bushes, it looked as if people were striking thousands of matches. Mechanical death went steadily on. Four Turkish batteries on the Kizlar Daw were blown up one after the other by our battleships. We watched the thick, rolling smoke of the explosions and saw bits of wheels and the arms and legs of gunners blown up in little black fragments against that pearl-pink sunrise. The noise of mechanical battle went surging from one side of the bay to the other. It swept round suddenly with an angry rattle of maxims and the hard echoing crackle of rifle fire. Now and then our battleships crashed forth, and their shells went hurtling and screaming over the mountains to burst with a muffled roar somewhere out of sight. Mechanical death moved back and forth. It whistled and screamed and crashed. It spat fire and unfolded puffs of gray and white and black smoke. It flashed tongues of livid flame, like some devilish anteater lapping up its insects and the insects were the sons of men. Mechanical death, as we saw him at work, was hard and metallic, steel-studded and shrapnel-toothed. Now and then he bristled with bayonets, and they glittered here and there in tiny groups and charged up the rocks and through the bushes. The noise increased. Mechanical death worked first on our side and then with the Turks. He led forward a squad, and the next instant mowed them down with a hail of lead. He galloped up a battery, unlimbered, and before the first shell could be rammed home, mechanical death blew up the whole lot with a high explosive from a Turkish battery in the hills. And so it went on, hour after hour. Crackle, rattle, and roar. Scream, whistle, and crash. We stood there on the deck, watching the men get killed.
Now and then a shell came wailing and moaning across the bay and dropped into the water with a great column of spray glittering in the early morning sunshine. A German taube buzzed overhead. The hum-hum-hum of the engine was very loud. She dropped several bombs, but none of them did much damage. The little yellow-skinned observation balloon floated above one of our battleships like a penny toy. The Turks had several shots at it, but missed it every time. The incessant noise of battle grew more distant as our troops on shore advanced. It broke out like a bushfire and spread from one section to another. Mechanical death pressed forward across the salt lake. It stormed the heights of the Capandra Cert on one side and took Lalababa on the other. Puffs of smoke hung on the hills, and the shore was all wreathed in the smoke of rifle and machine gun fire. A deadly conflict, this, for one Turk on the hills was worth ten British down below on the salt lake. There was no glory. Here was death, sure enough. Mechanical death run amuck. But where was the glory? We wondered how it was that we were still alive when so many lay dead. Some were killed on the decks of the transports by shrapnel. Our monitors crept close to the sandy shore and poured out a deadly brood of death. And now came the time for us to land. We huddled into the lighter and hauled our stores down below. Some of us were green about the gills, and some were trying to pretend we didn't care. We watched the boat which landed just before us strike a mine and be blown to pieces. Encouraging sight. The Capanja Cert runs along one side of Suvla Bay. It is one wing of that horseshoe formation of rugged mountains which hems on the Anafartaova and the Salt Lake. Our searching zone for wounded lay along this ridge, which rises like the vertebrae of some great antediluvian reptile, dropping sheer down on the Gulf of Sarah's side and in varying slopes to the plains and the Salt Lake on the other. Here again, small things left a vivid impression. The crack of a rifle from the top of the ridge and a party of British climbing up the rocks and scrub in search of the hidden Turk. I worked up and down the line of squads trying to keep them in touch with each other. We were carrying stretchers, haversacks, iron rations, medical haversacks, medical water bottles filled on Limnus Island, and three monkey boxes or filled medical companions. The stretcher squads worked slowly forward. We passed an old Turkish well with a stone flagged front and a stone trough. Later on we came upon the trenches and bivouacs of a Turkish sniping headquarters. It was near here that our first man was killed later in the day. He was looking into these bivouacs and was about to crawl out when a bullet went through his brain. It was a sniper's shot. Now came a period of utter stagnation. It was a deadlock. We held the bay, the plain of Anafarta, the Salt Lake, the Kislar Daw, and the Kapanja Cert in a horseshoe. The Turks held the heights of Sari Bear, Anafarta Village, and the hills in a semicircle enclosing us. Nothing happened. We shelled and they shelled every day. Snipers sniped and men got killed, but there was no further advance. Things had remained at a standstill since the first week of the landing. Rumors floated from one unit to another. We are going to make a great attack on the 28th, always a fixed date. The Italians are landing troops to help the Australians at Anzac. Every possible absurdity was noised abroad. Orders to pack up ready for a move came suddenly. It was now late in September. The wet season was just beginning. The storm clouds were coming up over the hills in great masses of rolling banks, black and forbidding. It grew colder at night, and the cold wind sprang up during the day. And so at last, we got aboard. It was still a profound secret. No one knew whither we were going or why we were leaving the desolation of Sauvla Bay. 
but everyone was glad. Anything would be better than this barren waste of sand and flies and dead men. That was the last we saw of the bay. Only three months ago we had landed 25,000 strong, and now we numbered about 6,000. A fearful loss, a smashed division. The queer thing is that when I look back upon that great failure, it is not the danger or the importance of the undertaking which is strongly impressed so much as a jumble of smells and sounds and small things. It is just these small things which no author can make up in his study at home. Stay-at-home critics and prophets of war cannot strike just that tiny spark of reality which makes the whole thing live. There was adventure, wild and queer enough, in the Dardanelles campaign to fill a volume of Turkish night's entertainments, but the people at home know nothing of it. This is the very type of adventure and incident which would have aroused a war-sickened people, which would have rekindled war-weary enthusiasm and patriotism in the land. Maybe most of these accounts of marvelous escapes and cute encounters, secret scoutings, and extraordinary expeditions will lie now forever with the silent dead and the thousands of rounds of ammunition in the silver sand of Suvla Bay. End of section 37. This recording is in the public domain.